Welcome to the Legacy Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Tommy Miller. For more information about Legacy Church, please visit us online at www.legacychurchclm.org. Whether you know it or not, you were made to be a co-creator with God. And one of the most dangerous things in the world is somebody that's made in the image of a co-creator and doesn't realize it. Meaning the things they say, the things they think have a tendency to materialize in their life and they assume that they fall victim to a circumstance when they're actually empowered to change it. Do you realize that? Have you ever met somebody that when you ask them, hey man, how's it going? They give you the three biggest problems they're facing and then ask for prayer. Right? My wife and I were in the gym one time and we ran into an old friend. We're like, hey, how's it going? Half hour later, I was like, remind me not to do that again. (laughs) Sorry. I'm not always compassionate. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is this. Did you ever wonder what came first? Did their negativity actually breed an existence that just sucks? Or did they get dealt a hand that they're not willing to deal with? I think both can be true, but let me remind you of this. That you and I being made in the image of God gives us authority to think and speak things contrary to what we see. And our thoughts and our words actually have been empowered by Holy Spirit to transform the things that are before our very eyes. And if we're not first comfortable with who we are, we'll never be aware of what we can do. Does that make sense? God was unashamedly okay with delegating his responsibilities to manage and govern the affairs of earth. He was unashamedly okay with bestowing his authority onto you in your life. And then, as the parable goes, he gave to some servants his talents and then he left. And when he came back, his idea was to reconcile with the servants and say, what did you do with what I gave you? And and to summarize this principle so we can get to the meat of the, the, the passage, at the very end, there was a servant that received five talents, a servant that received two and a servant that received one. And both the, the servants that received five and two took what they had and they created more. They, they took the authority, the gifting, the identity, the destiny they had been given. And they had been responsible to use it and it bore fruit. Now the response of the third servant is something that we have to pay keen attention to. Because his response was this. And you got you to follow me on this because this is common church attitude. He said, God, I didn't do anything with what you gave me. And he said, why did you not do anything with what I gave you? He said, because I knew that you're a hard man, that you gather where you don't scatter seed and that you reap where you haven't sown. He was confessing that God himself could make something out of nothing. So essentially, sometimes our idea is that God can handle it. So I will irresponsibly sit back and wait on the Lord while he is actually waiting on me. What he referred to, this third servant, he said, why didn't you at least give it to somebody else so they could do something with it? He said, but you, wicked and lazy servant, and he tossed him out. 
Now, I'm not saying this to scare anybody, but I am saying this to encourage you. That what God gives you, you are responsible to recognize and employ. So if God says that the power of life and death lies in Jesus' hands, that's not what it says. It doesn't say Satan holds the keys to death. The Bible says legitimately, word for word, line for line, that the keys to life and death are in the tongue of a believer. So the chances are the experience that you're living in was framed by you a couple years ago with the junk that you allowed to spew out of your mouth. Let me make it more practical. When you recognize who you are, when you recognize the authority that you carry and the danger that you possess because the things you agree with are now authorized to manifest. When you understand that, you'll come to a place where you realize that complaining, ready? Every time you utter a complaint about your circumstance, you empower it to stay the same. Every single time you fall into a Christian pity party, you empower the thing that's plaguing you to continue to torture you. Does it make sense? Paul said it this way. Romans chapter 12. The first 11 books of Romans were some of the most clear and, and I'll say detailed depictions of the riches of the new covenant. The first 11 books were perfect theology. Now, I refer to the 12th book as something else. Everybody say, walkology. Walkology. So if you want to know how to take the first 11 books and apply it, to walk it out, how to make it real and tangible to you, that's the message that Paul starts Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 with. After he gets done telling them of their authority, after he gets done saying that you're perfect, blameless, spotless, and holy, and that faith in Jesus purchased everything that you need for life and godliness, now it's time for you to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. And then he says, and don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is calling us out of the existence of a thermometer and he has appointed you a thermostat. Does that make sense to you? What's the difference? A thermometer is always an indication of what's going on around it. A thermostat controls it. You guys know that because I see blankets on all of our ladies this morning. I don't want to beat that horse till it's dead, but listen... So often, we as Christians haven't felt or haven't recognized the empowerment of the Lord, so we think that we only have to be as good as it's going. If we're not pleased with our circumstance, if we aren't pleased with our finance, if we aren't pleased with our spouse, if we aren't pleased with the doctor's report, we mope around like sad Sally, and we're like, I love Jesus, you should go to my church, it's great. That kind of spirituality is not sexy. Nobody wants it. 
People were consistently asking Jesus and Paul, bro, how do I get what you have? Well, it doesn't come with a sourpuss face. There has to be an element of our Christianity that shows that we're overcomers. There has to be something about our faith that shows that we can handle trials differently than the rest of the world. We can't lose our joy just because something's trying to steal it. We can't be the thermometers of the world just because the temperature goes down. That's when we, from the inside out, have the opportunity to crank it up. Jesus, he's good. Don't be conformed. To the patterns of this world. Don't allow the negativity, the junk, the narcissism around you to make you be something different than the manifestation of the person of Jesus. Every time you step on a flower, what happens? Actually smells better. Right? You'll know what's in you when you get crushed. You either stink or you don't. You want to talk about this? I, I, my, heart, my heart is this. I want us to first see who we are. If, if we get no further than that, this is a su- successful message. Because from the least to the greatest in here. Let me make this make sense. You and I live in an era that the Bible refers to as the age of the kingdom. In the kingdom, right? So, so Jesus is teaching and he says, of those born of women... No man stands greater than John the Baptist. So think about that. He's talking about Moses. He's talking about King David. He's talking about King Jeroboam. He's talking about Isaiah. He's talking about all of these amazing prophets that we put on a pedestal and say, man, I wish I could be like them. He says of those born of women, none stands greater than John the Baptist. But then his very next line says, and you, the least in the kingdom are greater than he. That means when you actually get to heaven, do you understand that Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah are going to be lining up to meet you as the hall of famers of the kingdom because you had the authority within you to accomplish something they could never accomplish. And that's being the unconditional, consistent manifestation of Jesus in absolutely every circumstance, no matter how bad, no matter how negative, and no matter how sad it got. You continued to strive with the Spirit because He determines our thoughts, our words, and our actions. We no longer have to be a slave to our surroundings. We can transform our surroundings by transforming our mind. Christian mind discipline or Christian thinking is one of the most overlooked topics in the church because we leave that part to psychologists. But it's one of the most vital things because to tell you the truth, when Paul talks about spiritual warfare, he doesn't talk about going around your yard and pouring oil on it. He never mentions tossing blood back up on your windowsills and all the weird sage burning and freaky things that we like to do as Christians. He says, if you want to win a spiritual war, you transform the way you think. Because the battlefield is 100% of the time between your ears. Do you want to understand what that means or you want to just leave it at that? I think we need something applicable. Let's talk about this for a minute. If I and you, as humans, 
are the only entity that God placed on this planet that have authority to have dominion over everything that happens here, then anything that desires to manifest from a spiritual realm needs your agreement to permit it to manifest. Make sense? So we as believers, whether we like to recognize it or not, are always walking in faith. Faith is the currency that allows invisible realities to become visible. That's Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. By faith, we understand that the world was framed by the word of God, that the things that we see came from somewhere that you can't see. That's what Hebrews says. So how many of you know that the things that you can't see aren't always good? But... The entire spiritual realm, the whole of the spiritual realm, understands that in order to become a reality, it has to have your agreement. So when you're dwelling on negativity, when things just seem bleak, when things just seem hopeless, that's just something dark depositing its thoughts in you so it can gain your agreement, so it can become true. Make sense? That's why Paul was so passionate about teaching people how to take their thoughts captive. How to fight a real spiritual fight because it has way less to do with casting out demons and more training your thinking. How to align and come into agreement with the mind of God. Make sense? A lot of times we put like the big things before the necessary things. We were talking about in our leaders meeting this morning. A lot of you want to raise the dead, but you won't mow your neighbor's grass. Right? A lot of us want to heal the sick, but we won't take a bag of sugar over to our poor neighbors. And sometimes that kind of spirituality is extremely unattractive. I believe a lot of the church really wants to cast out demons and see some crazy deliverance stuff up here on the altar, but we're not willing just to take our own thoughts captive first. There's, there's some very practical, covert things that we need to become very familiar with and very disciplined in in order for us to see God move in our life the way we'd like to see him move. Amen? So let's talk practical now. We're going to talk through kind of line by line, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you turn there, I will, uh, I'll, I'll get to work on it. We'll see where we end up. We're going to start in verse I'm going to read through verse 6, and then we'll just break it down. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we don't do war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. This is my wife's favorite scripture in all of the New Testament. And she and I both regularly practice this. And what's funny, you can tell when she's practicing it. Can I tell on you? I can tell when a negative thought snuck into her head. Do you know why? Because she goes, shh, stop, shh. And she smiles. Because we can't afford to have thoughts in our head that Jesus wouldn't have in his Not for a second, not for a moment, not about yourself, not about the people in your church, not about the people in your family, because what you come into agreement with, you've empowered to become your reality. 
So anytime something comes in that's you're hopeless, you're worthless, you don't even belong here. Everybody else in this church isn't putting their church face on. You think the fight with you, ha- you had with your husband before you came in here is unique to you? I saw y'all in your cars. And then y'all went, shh, stop it. But you weren't talking to your thoughts. <laughs> We can't afford, not for a moment, to have a thought in our head that Jesus wouldn't have in his. Not about our circumstance, not about ourself, not about the people around us. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. First thing Paul says is, though we walk in the flesh, that's not where the battle is. So please understand, first and foremost, if you're fighting something you can see, you're wasting your time. If you're fighting something that you can see, you're wasting your time. Satan will always try to make the visible more real and of bigger concern to you than he will the actual spiritual reality that's behind your battle. He'll make your late bills seem more important than your prayer time. He'll make your spouse seem worse than the, the, than the thinking that they are, are being subject to. Most of the time when people are being negative to you, it's, it, it's just a reflection of the battle that they have within themselves. Listen, happy people aren't mean. That might sound simplistic, but happy people aren't mean. Mean people aren't happy. Remember that. We can see them with compassion and cover them rather than judge them back. Amen? Oh, boy. This passage is one of the first and only letters that Paul references, and he offers training in spiritual warfare. The first advice he offers, though, is what you see in front of your very eyes is not the battle you should be fighting. It is simply a manifestation of the battle's result. What is being won and lost in the spiritual plane is being manifested in the flesh for everyone to see. Battles are fought in a spiritual dimension. The results of those battles are what we see manifested in front of our very eyes. Here's an example. Do you know oftentimes, especially in our culture, we think that if you've been through situation A, then you should respond with situation B, right? My parents are divorced, so I should need counseling. I was uh, abused and molested, so I should be a broken, fractured adult, right? Those, that kind of thinking. But when you've been around enough people, one of the things that Shanda and I do quite frequently is we counsel broken people because we have something that will make them whole. But you would be surprised how peculiar it is to have one person come with alcohol on their breath and say, brother, my my dad was an alcoholic and I was just destined to be an alcoholic. And then we meet with a doctor the next day that says, I've never touched a drop of alcohol because my dad was an alcoholic. It's your perspective of your circumstance that determines your reaction to the problem. It doesn't mean just because you're in the pits that you have to respond with negativity. That's up to you. We have the authority to transform things by the renewing of your mind. Listen, next time you you sink into one of your Christian pity parties, nobody feels bad for you. And if you have good friends, they won't let you stay there. They will never empower you to be a victim. They'll say, pick your chin up. We've got souls to win and demons to slay and destinies to walk out. We don't have time to sit here like a bunch of wimps. I watched my wife call her friend and apologize. I've, I've had to say this to people. If there has ever been any time 
that I, as your Christian brother or pastor, have empowered you to stay a victim, I apologize. I am sorry for not kicking you in the rear and telling you to get up off it and move on. You can clap. That's good. The difference in the manifestation that it finds in your life is the natural result of your spiritual agreement. Where you are now isn't always based on fact. It's often based on thoughts. Do you agree with that? Your situation, listen, I've seen people in some of the most beautiful situations that just can't find happiness. Do you know why they can't find happiness? They refuse to be thankful. And they refuse to take the negative thoughts captive that are stealing their joy. They can enjoy their families. They can enjoy their uh, wealth. Some of the wealthiest people I know are the most unhappy. Because they can't find gratitude in God's gifting. You know giving is a spiritual gift? Like, people want to prophesy and raise the dead. Uh, I want to give. That's a spiritual gift. So if you're wealthy today and you're not happy, first of all, be thankful. Second of all, realize that that money will never make you happy. But God will. Amen. There are two ways to see a problem and two solutions, physical and spiritual. As long as you see the problem is spiritual and the solution is spiritual, you'll be right 100% of the time. The next thing Paul says is the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, but they're mighty in God. What we use to fight are not natural means, but they are able means. In the next few lines, Paul's about to start pointing out the real battlefield of believers and how to overcome it. It's vital that we don't pass this off as psychology and not recognize this as a real basis for spiritual victory and a responsibility of ours to overcome. So I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk about strongholds, I'm going to talk about arguments, and I'm going to talk about high things. Before we do, I want to, to lay a really clear premise. Nobody in the world, not even God himself, will take your thoughts captive for you. Nobody. The Bible says take your thoughts captive. So when you're stuck in a Christian pity party, you're the only person that can invite yourself out. You're the only person that can invite yourself out. And I highly encourage you, listen, this isn't easy. If you're like, I've tried, I've failed, I'm not saying it's easy. Anybody in here that's ever tried to discipline their thoughts away from negativity and hopelessness can tell you that those thoughts are loud and they're super convincing. They're loud and they're super convincing. But what you have to do is be responsible enough to realize that lies, though convincing, aren't truth. And that truth, though silent, is powerful. And you, as the, the, the conduit of heaven re, heavenly reality, have the ability to partner with truth to change circumstance. I had a, uh, my wife had two surgeries on her neck. Um, same surgery, the first one just didn't work. And then I... Uh, Went through a couple weeks where I couldn't do anything. I, as soon as I put my neck down to, to read my Bible or study or pray or anything, I would be in just this atrocious pain. So I went to the chiropractor, and he adjusted me, and it got way worse. And I'm like, oh, great. He just, I'm like, do I still have toes? So, so he's like, buddy, I, I can't adjust you anymore. Like, I think that was maybe a sign that you got something pinched or something herniated. Why don't we, why don't we get you an MRI? So they got me an MRI. 
And I had the same thing she had. And I said, you need to see a neurosurgeon like stat. And I came home and I was just thinking about all the recovery she went through and all the pain she was in and all this. And I'm like, I don't have time for that. I can't do that. I came home worried, and I, I literally remember there was a Bible sitting on the counter, and I had the doctor's report, and she's like, which one are you going to believe? I'm like, hmm. She's like, that says you're healed, that says you're sick. Which one are you going to partner with? And I said, that one, pain left, never came back. The pain left and never came back. That's, that's the authority that a believer was given by God himself to partner with truth to change circumstance. This, this. This. Just, 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 if you're going to do it, do it. Like. <laughs> All right. Strongholds, arguments, and high things. Let's talk about these. Paul says that our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. What's a stronghold? It's, a, it's, it's actually a really bad translation of what it is because it sounds demonic. Or it sounds like something that's kind of difficult to process. But the definition of a stronghold is a thinking pattern that justifies dysfunction. So there's things in our lives that we refuse to receive the grace of God in. Like, um, I'm not good at being in a relationship with a potential spouse because all of my spouses hurt me. And I, I deserve to be like this because I've had to shield myself because of the pain that's been done to me before, right? That's a stronghold. That is a reasoning that justifies current dysfunction. That is your reason for standing apart from the promise of God and believing it for everybody else. How many of us do that, right? You'll pray for the sick, but you stay at home and won't pray for yourself. You won't believe that God can get you off the couch in the morning and get rid of that headache for you when you step out in faith. But you'll pray for everybody else, right? Because you think you deserve it. Or God doesn't heal people that pray for themselves. Or whatever stinking thinking pattern that you have that justifies your dysfunction. Listen, if you're not walking in destiny, if you're not walking in forgiveness, if you're not walking in the wholeness that God has promised you, then you have come up with some underlying reasoning of why you're staying that way and why God can't fix it. You have to tear down that stronghold. But it's all right here. Why am I afraid of people? Why won't I leave my house? Why can I not be in a healthy relationship? Why can't I stay in a church long enough for, for me to get plugged in and activated? There's people that we've talked to that fell into sin 20 years ago and were removed from a ministry position and they still won't step back in. They've been restored for 20 years. But they're like, no, 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 that's like my kryptonite. If I start serving the Lord, I'm going to sin. What kind of devil trash talk is that? God's a God of restoration. Listen, there's other people that 20 years ago they were hurt by a controlling pastor. Guess what? They're still not back in. And they use that reasoning to justify their dysfunction and their, and their distance from the local body. I saw something on Facebook this morning. I actually saved it. It says, I don't go to church. I read the Bible for myself. And then it had a, an arrow. Somebody commented proof that you don't read the Bible for yourself. You're never supposed to forsake the local body. All of us have a place. All of us have something to do. And if we're using reasoning to justify why we won't function in it, that's a stronghold. Anything that you have received or accepted in your mind as a reasoning that you refuse to step into what was paid for for you already by the blood of Christ is a stronghold. You want to talk about the next one? This is my favorite. We don't even realize we do this. 
It was the, the, the weapons of our warfare are the pulling down of strongholds and the casting down arguments. Now, what's amazing about this word arguments is its, uh, it's, it's translation was ideologies. Ideologies would actually be better said what ifs. How many of you live bound by what ifs? I'll go out on this business venture, but what if it fails? What if they don't like me? What if, what if, what if? How many of you actually think that the what ifs that enter your mind are from, from logic? They're not from logic, they're from hell. Because how many of you have ever had a what if that's good? Your husband's coming home late from work and you're like, what if he stopped at the jewelry store? How many times has that happened? What if he stopped to get me cupcakes? What ifs are never positive. What if he's dead in a ditch? Kids are late. They must be decapitated. It's the only logical thing to think. (laughs) What happens? How does this work? First of all, how do we think it's okay? How do we continue to just walk through this and not recognize Satan trying to force us to live in fear? (laughs) The last thing. He says, is that it's to cast down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, this passage, this, this, I'll say this particular enemy is a whole lot like the first one, but it's, it's slightly different in this. All of us have different high things. The definition of a high thing is, is simply anything that you have more faith in than God. And you might look back at me and say, well, nothing is greater than God. Well, prove it. Prove it. Because whatever you're worried about, you've put more faith in than God. Whatever you're anxious about, you've, you've sided with over God's ability to crush the enemy that's in front of you. Something about Christianity that we need to be better at communicating is that you win every time but you never stop fighting. You win every time, but you never stop fighting. Makes it really fun. Just keep putting notches in your belt and and demon carcasses on your wall. They don't like that very much. But how many of you have a high thing? How many have a bill that you don't think you'd be able to pay, a sickness that you don't be able to think, think you're going to be able to shake, or your marriage that you think is beyond restitution? That's a high thing. And those high things weren't placed in your mind by you. They were, they were thoughts of doubt that came from hell itself to get you to partner with something so the thing that's plaguing you continues to torture you. Without first recognizing our position as a co-creator with God and being willing to partner with his truth then we actually think that worrying will buy us something. Do you know what it'll buy you? It'll buy you more of the thing that you're worried about. How many of you have ever had worry solve a problem for you? How many of you have ever had anxiety solve a problem for you? Do you know what the definition of insanity is? To continue to do the same thing and expect a different result. The church needs to repent of worrying and allow the father to take his place as a father 
and you approach him like the Bible says as a child who has trust, care, and conviction that that daddy that loved you and purchased you that wouldn't even withhold his own son from you is also willing to, to meet every need you have according to his riches and glory. Amen. Come on. All right, then Paul gets into the solution. I'll be quick with this and then we'll get wrapped up. Paul says the solution to this is to bring every thought captive. Say every. It doesn't say most. It doesn't even say bring the bad ones captive. It says take every thought captive. That means that if something passes between your ears, you have the responsibility to measure it according to the truth of God. To see if that thought that's between your ears at that moment would make sense. If you took the thought out of your head and put it in Jesus's and went, hmm, that looks stupid. Get it out of yours. Jesus was never like, I'm hopeless. God doesn't love me. I just, I don't feel like going today. He never did that. He was amazing. And he lives in you. If you can take the thought out of your head, deposit it in the mind of Jesus, stand back and analyze, and say, I think Jesus would think that, then you can think it. But if it's thoughts of hopelessness, depression, anxiety, fear, oppression, negativity, sadness, and all of these things that try to come into the life of a believer, listen, they're just trying to get you to abort your mission. And we think that partnering with negativity will solve it, and it doesn't. It empowers it to continue. So what Paul says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And there's something really important that we need to understand about this. Every thought means every thought. Small thoughts. Big thoughts. Thoughts that are just kind of bad. Listen, there's a life that God's called you to that you will absolutely enjoy. Hmm. Hmm. Guess what? God just spoke something. You, you don't have to, to recognize or resonate with this in any way. Huh. But there's a, there, there, it's easy to be raised in an environment where perversion is celebrated. Get me? And sometimes it's easy for that perverted mindset to become your only form of humor and association. But the fact is, even though the jokes and things come out your mouth, you don't like it. You feel like it after they do. So this is all I'm going to say. God is going to deliver someone from a mindset of perversion that was handed down from a father or grandfather. He's going to deliver you from that. Because there is this, this mind of Christ that actually just continues to bring joy. And it's when it's polluted with things that came from your past, they, they, they grieve you, but you don't know how to get rid of them. So I'm saying today, in Jesus' name, those thoughts are going to, to, to come off of you. And you won't have to deal with being the Christian that also has a really dark side that you're ashamed of. That's how I feel this is going. Is that Okay. Does that make sense? If that's you and you want to talk through it, come talk to me after service. Right now, don't acknowledge it because you might feel bad. <laughs> I'm the weirdo. Like, it's me. No, it's not weird. It's very common, actually. But God wants to, to deliver you because it's, it's not like, I'm not calling out somebody that has a mindset that you're okay with. 
Okay, I believe God's calling out somebody that, that has thoughts of perversion that you don't want. And it came generationally, and God's going to break them off you today in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. How many of you ever had a puppy? What nightmares? Right? It's like a two-year-old with sharp teeth. It's awful. Do you know your thoughts are a lot like those? Because what's really funny about small thoughts is sometimes they're cute. They can be laughed at, right? Like, oh, it's so cute. But guess what? What happens when your pit bull's got a hold of your finger when it's like a couple months old? It's got that cute growl, and it's like, and, and all your friends, you're like, look at him chew on stuff. And then whenever he's like a year old, you're missing a limb. And it's not funny anymore at all. But the reason you have to now go without your arm is because you refused to discipline the puppy when he was small and cute. Sometimes the thoughts that come into our minds slip through our radar because we're not willing to be harsh enough on, the, on our mind that if it's even that much out of the context of the mind of Christ, it has no right to reside in your mindset. Your thoughts need obedience training just like your puppies do. Just because it's not suicide doesn't mean it's not okay. Do you know that it's impossible? Listen. Somebody made in the image of God to personally develop their own thought of suicide. What I mean by that is you'll never want to end your life. The fact is you have purpose, you have destiny, you have things to accomplish and giftings to offer all of the people around you. So there is something that is an enemy of your soul that wishes you would die. So it makes itself sound like you. It says, why are you even here? You're not even noticed. Church doesn't need you. And then you're like, maybe, maybe I'm right because you think it's your own voice. But guess what? It's not your voice. It's the voice of the enemy in your soul that sees something in you, something dangerous, something destructive that's going to recess his kingdom back into the lower bowels of hell. And he doesn't want you to step into the destiny that he's called you to. Amen. Okay, stand to your feet. I want to point something out to you. Sometimes Paul's really good at giving us like a line-by-line teaching. But often that line-by-line teaching follows a, a very vast thought. Romans chapter 12, when he says, present your body as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service, what he's asking us to do is give up our past our carnal rights, our will, and the things that we felt like we were possessors of at one time. He said, just give me your life. I feel like that's a fair trade. Life for life. Jesus gave you his. Now you can give him yours. It's fair, right? But what we have to understand is the context. Because sometimes if we don't understand the relationship that we have with the person that's speaking, then we can't understand the context. How many of you know relationship determines context? M- Millie's one of our academy students. She knows Shanda and I really well. I can, I can joke with her and she would laugh. I can say the same things to a, a visitor and they would get offended and leave because relationship determines the understanding of the context. Right? 
So if we don't know the goodness of Jesus and he comes up to you and he says, hey, if you want to follow me, you got to you got to forsake yourself and come after me. You have to pick up your cross and follow me. You have to lose your life for my sake. And if we don't understand the goodness of Jesus, we'll think that's a bad thing. But what he's saying is if you desire to come after me, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. And I promise, son, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. That doesn't sound like such a bad deal. That doesn't sound so sacrificial and painful. What he's saying is he wants you to bring your bag of pebbles and dump them out so he can fill it up with the diamonds that he has predestined you to have from before the foundation of the world. He wants you to give up your right to continue to be victimized by your past. How many of you want to stay a victim? How many of you want to continue to be in relationships that aren't healthy? How many of you want to continue to make your spouse pay for what your mom and dad did to you? I'm not trying to cut anybody deep, but listen, Jesus don't want you to stay like that. He wants you to lose your life so you can find something. He wants you to surrender so that you can gain. He doesn't want you to surrender so you can die. He wants you to die to yourself so you can be alive unto him. Which is a much better deal than just, hey, go kill yourself already. Listen, these thoughts that we have, sometimes we feel like we have a right to have them because of the circumstance that we're in. Sometimes we'll justify our stinking thinking because we deserve better. We have no idea what God's working in heaven for you. We have no idea what he's trying to orchestrate to give to his sons and daughters as we embark on the destiny and the ministry that he's called us to. But what we do know is he's good. And every good thing that he starts, he finishes. So if it's not good yet, it's not done yet. But while you're in the middle of it, every time that you complain, every time that you slip into negativity, every time you get into a Christian pity party, you're actually exercising your right to run your life. He's just asking you to surrender that. Trust. One of the hardest things as a Christian to do is trust. How am I going to make this happen? I never asked you how you're going to make it happen. I just told you to do it. 